Hello, and welcome to another episode of Chilling with Charlie. Today, I'm here with Micah McCurdy, who you might know better online as Ineffective Math on Twitter, or you might be a fan of his fantastic ice hockey website, hockeyviz.com. Running a podcast costs money. Chilling with Charlie is proudly sponsored by Betfair Australia. Betfair operates a betting exchange and is licensed in the Northern Territory of Australia. They are not a bookmaker and you can see how they champion data modelling by checking out bit.ly forward slash betfaircharlie, gamble responsibly. Why don't you just tell us a bit about your background, a bit about your mathematical journey from Canada to the UK to Australia and how it is you became such an active member of the hockey analytics community. So I grew up sort of all over the world as a kid, traveling all over, but mostly in, in Halifax, where I live now. And when you live in Canada, if you're in Australia, you understand the phenomenon of being completely surrounded by sports of every type. But of course, in Canada, the sportsness is not so sort of generic. It's very, very specific. Uh, and it's hockey all the time. And so you don't need to pay a great deal of attention to it. It will almost pay attention to you. So it feels like it's following you around. But then I went and did my master's in Cambridge, and that was that was different enough, and I had just gotten married as well. But then immediately after that, went to Sydney, Australia to do my PhD, and all of a sudden, this very familiar thing from my culture just completely disappeared. And I was also on the other side of the world, and PhDs by their nature are isolating because you have to do something that no one else has done, and or you know, you're supposed to do. And so the combination of those things really made me dig into hockey. And when I did, I at first I just watched and watched and watched. But then the parts of my nature that say, well, you know, you ought to analyze this. You ought to, you know, every time you come up with questions, if you have the means to analyze them seriously, it's very tempting, very hard to resist the temptation not to. And so I had, you know, could write a Monte Carlo simulation about what was likely with some weighted coins. And so you started doing that sort of thing, especially because I had access to a computer and a fair bit of free time because in your PhD, you can, you get a lot of latitude to follow whatever ideas come to your mind. And so for years, I, I just did it entirely as a, a hobby for my own amusement. I didn't even share it with other people. But then later, as I came to find out things that were more and more interesting, I craved a, a more social context for it and started putting it out, which is where, where we got to where we are now. What kind of things were you first analyzing when you started? I started out just with team strength, where I uh, trying to do what what was sort of the fashion, if you like, in public hockey Twitter a number of years ago, although I wasn't on Twitter right at first of just trying to look at, at how could I look at team trends and see what kind of predictions I could make about the future. The simplest idea there was that you could get better results about the future by looking past goal results and instead looking at shot results and start to take the very first of baby steps towards disentangling goaltender results from skater results from team results. And that occupied me for, well, I guess, a better part of two years of just trying to isolate what teams were like what sort of samples showed them in their best light you know did you want to look at five games did you want to look at 25 games did you want to look at 100 games you know even more than a single season and i mean fashion not just fashion but the state of the art of the discipline has moved on so far from then but there was a time when that was still really novel you know just looking at things other than team wins or goals even felt like diving incredibly deep where the interest in visualization come about so obviously your site's hockey viz how did all that start so that in some sense is a much much older idea 
not about data viz specifically, but about visual thinking generally. I think pretty much my entire life, I've tackled problems visually. And that's just a an unavoidable part of my personality from where I sit. And so I always approached mathematics that way. And there's always been a an opening of that type in mathematics for people who think very visually, even though it's not the dominant way that mathematicians think about the world. There's always been a little bit of space there. And so then when I did my undergrad, I was naturally drawn towards the visual aspects of things. And then in my master's and my, my PhD, that was drawn out even more. And so the, the specific details of what I did in my PhD are not very interesting to anybody now or since. But the methods that I used were all graphical because I, I had that graphical, I don't know, nature is a bit flamboyant, but that sort of a tendencies within myself, within my mind. And so then when I turned my attention to hockey instead, you know, the one thing that you could be sure of ahead of time was that it would be presented primarily in the first interest for my own benefit so that I could understand what I was doing. You know, I, I made a lot of visualizations so that I could look at the data that I was using and make sure that it was all right. And, you know, your, your ability to detect what's wrong with something visually is very, very strong. That sense of like, no, what's that? You, you can't help but sort of poke at something in the corner of a graph until you understand what it means or, or you've discovered that actually you made a mistake and it's all fixed up. And so that, if you like, comes from not any particular desire that I think it's especially appropriate to hockey or, or to sports fizz or anything like that, but just that, that anything I do comes out that way because I, I don't have any ability to do it any other way. So running a website, how do you go about growing your presence and getting more and more eyes on your website? So a lot of it is just finding a community, for lack of a better word, of people who are interested and trying very hard to solve the kinds of problems that they're coming up with. You can't solve other people's problems as such. It doesn't, it doesn't animate you properly, but you can use the way other people think to let that animate the way that you solve the problems that interest you. So you can make yourself part of a technical conversation that way. And so I started out just posting things on Facebook years ago. And so you know, a handful of friends of mine would sort of dutifully like things that I put out, even though they didn't particularly care about it. They just thought that they were indulging some curiosity of mine, which they were. But then much later, I discovered Twitter by completely coincidental effect. I, uh, one of the godparents of one of my kids, a fantastic woman named Kristen McKenzie, she suggested that I join Twitter just for fun. She used it to talk about reality TV to her friends, in which I have no interest whatsoever. But I tried it out anyway, just because I thought it would be fun. And to my great surprise, found a very large community of people talking about hockey. And so just trying to solve the problems that they were interested in solving using the kinds of techniques that I was comfortable using immediately just sort of showed an interesting seam of things. Um, and I had the, the time and the wherewithal to do it. So more recently, it's been considerably more conscious where I, I market the website. It's my full-time job now, and I try to give it the time and attention it deserves. But in the early years when I had other jobs on the side, it was much more just, you know, oh, this is interesting. We'll see what people think of this. And then there was an extra element to it where I, instead of just answering the problems that I liked, I tried to answer those same problems for all 30 teams or all 31 teams all at a time. And that, that helped sort of enforces a discipline over the code that you write where you say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to make sure I do this properly and I'm not going to get caught by any specific details of any specific team because I'm going to do it for all of them all at once. And I'm not going to let myself get fooled by those specific details. But then once you've got all this data for all these teams, you, know, you can't help but 
but think, well, if I presented this systematically, then maybe Islanders fans would come and take a look at this, even though I don't personally care about the Islanders at all and never have. And sure enough, they do. And if you have the ability to connect with them, and Twitter is what provides that. So that's been a guiding principle that's served me very, very well over the years, is to never just do a single thing for a single player, but to do it for every player, and never just for a single team, but for every team. What was the first problem that you tackled that you really felt gained a lot of traction amongst the hockey analytics community? The first one that really put any distance, I think, that I, that I felt like I actually solved or partially solved something would have to be score effects. And this is something that people already exist, that already knew about. I mean, Eric Tulski had published many articles about it before I came along and a number of others besides. And the effect, of course, is that teams that are losing dominate the play. And anybody who's watched, you know, more than four or five games will know what it looks like, you know, watching a team sit back on their heels defending a lead, watching a team that's losing come and press. And so I wanted to come up with some way of measuring that. And this is back in the days when we were still doing things in, in very primitive ways, just with shot counts or shot rates. We weren't even paying attention to where the shots were coming from, you know, just counting. And this is sort of this inside joke among people who do advanced stats is that none of it's particularly advanced, you know, something extremely elaborate, like count a thing and then divide by the number of minutes hardly counts as advanced. But that effect of score effects of trying to measure it in a way that you could adjust for it. So you could say, ah, so-and-so has put up this kind of rate of shots, but then when you account for the fact that they were constantly losing, you know, their natural rate of shots is maybe slightly less than that. And so you could do a quantitative adjustment for that. Uh, and the existing methods were a little bit clunky for doing that, and I came up with a new method, which was conceptually equivalent, but mathematically much, much simpler and could be applied to very, very small samples with the usual caveats about how much they meant. But you could at least make a stab at doing that on samples of much less than a season. And that was sort of quickly taken hold of, especially when I wrote a small article suggesting that my new way of calculating it produced estimates of team strength that were a little bit more accurate for predicted purposes than some of the fashionable choices at the time. In fact, just had a sort of a nostalgic walk down memory lane reading this article, which I published on the Hockey Graphs website five years ago or something. You know, and one of the things I say in the very end is, uh, you know, I'm hoping that this stat will become prominent and this other stat, this Corsi Close stat that people were tracking, will will fade away. And sure enough, I don't know exactly how much of a hand I had in that, but that is, in fact, what has come to pass, where, where this sort of close thing, which people were using to try to grasp that same concept, sort of clunkier and more awkwardly, has fallen out of favor completely. And more advanced methods, more in line with how I've been doing things, have t sort of won the day. And so that, I think, was the... The real mark to me, at least, I felt like I could actually contribute something and not just sort of talk at the periphery of the conversation. How do you pick up all these statistical skills coming from like a maths background? So the, I mean, there's definitely a difference. There's a culture difference, which you, you never feel the lack of. But in some sense, it's a lot like, you know, already speaking Italian and then saying, well, I'm going to go learn Romanian. And the languages are really quite close. And so when you have a lot of that background already there, it makes it much, much easier. The other thing, of course, is that, you know, with a lot of formal education in mathematics, especially moving from subject to subject, you know, from physics to this kind of group theory to that kind of category theory to that kind of whatever else, you develop a facility for picking up new things even when they're expressed in mathematical notation. And so what might look extremely forbidding to somebody who has very little statistical knowledge looks a lot simpler, not simpler, but a lot more approachable. The same way that somebody who's done a fair bit of climbing might look at a at a climbing wall that they've never seen and say, ah, well, you know, this is not so different from what I've looked at before. 
even if it's done in a slightly different style. And so despite coming from a different discipline, that background gives you a kind of fearlessness, which makes it easier to pick up new things. So recently you put up a pretty interesting scatter plot on uh, referees. Are you able to just talk a bit more about that and maybe some interesting questions you want to tackle in the future with regards to refs? Well, I haven't made a great deal of progress with the referee stuff. So there was just that one, if I recall, the, the scatterplot I put up was something just like how many penalties does each referee call on the home team and on the away team? And so there's no surprise that there's a pretty hefty correlation between the two. Anybody who's watched the game can see that, that the calls tend to even up. But I was interested just in finding out things like do certain referees call more penalties than others? And it's slightly tricky. I didn't do the, the hard work that I really ought to do to disentangle it from the kinds of teams that each ref plays because they don't all, you can't just pretend like the referees are randomly chosen for the games because they work out of particular cities. And so they ref games involving certain teams preferentially for scheduling reasons. But even still, I, I was surprised to discover that there were some referees who were very fond of calling lots of penalties and others who were quite fond of calling a quite different sort of game, except for Tim Peel, of course, who who doesn't follow any of the correlations of any of the referees at all. Uh, I got a lot of pushback on that, actually. On the one hand, some people were keen to see it, but but as soon as you put a referee's name in a chart, there's some people who feel like like you've sort of crossed a boundary, like you ought not to be making quantitative conclusions about referees. They sort of should remain anonymous. It was very unusual, actually. The, the social... I don't know, milieu around that is quite different than something about players. You know, it's, it's fair game to talk about how a player is great or how he's terrible or how he's this, that, or the other thing. And even approaching that sort of talk about referees rubs a lot of people the wrong way. Why do you think that is? I think it's this idea that, that the referees are not considered part of the objects of scrutiny in the same way that the players are. You know, the players get paid enormous amounts of money. And one of the things that comes with that, the territory that you get with that, is to be scrutinized by fans, that sort of access, which includes things like signing autographs, answering media questions. I, broadly, and I think correctly understood to mean copying it sweet when people say, ah, you know, so-and-so, he's a bum, or so-and-so, he's the real reason the team is winning. And that kind of public scrutiny, I don't think that referees sign up for quite as much. The league also protects them. Like, if a player makes a, an extremely severe mistake, they'll be suspended publicly, and they'll be told, you know, this is why, and the league will produce a small video explaining precisely what it is you did wrong so that everyone can understand. And referees, when they make mistakes, don't get that kind of scrutiny at all. I mean, they, they do get some scrutiny. Of course, the league monitors them and, and they can be disciplined and be removed from playoff games and so on. But it's not conducted in public. And so that, that creates that culture where, where referees are very easily to criticize in a group. You can say, oh, the refereeing in the league is terrible. Nobody minds you saying some, something like this. The, although it's very hard to say, you know what, as a group, as an entire league worth of referees, what that could possibly mean. But if you say, oh, this particular referee is doing this particular thing wrong, that sounds unusually hostile because of the way that the league agreement treats referees. And I think that also feeds its way into the culture, too, more broadly. So what would you like to see analyzed next with referees? Or what do you think are the big ticket items that you can do from the data that's available publicly? I wouldn't mind seeing something broken down about particular types of calls. I have a suspicion that I haven't been able to verify that I haven't really taken the time to do properly, that certain referees have a particular taste or distaste for certain calls. So that some of the calls are, are mandatory. You know, high sticking is one of these things where if you see it, you have to call. There's not supposed to be the slightest 
subjectivity about it. But all the others are more or less subjective where, you know, was that really holding? Was he holding a guy's stick? Oh, I might just let that go. I think there might be a tendency for certain referees to call certain kinds of penalties. And so you might want to make small adjustments to your lineup or small adjustments to your play style based on that. If you knew that you had the sort of player who could draw particular kinds of penalties, you know, like we imagine that you can draw hooking penalties by being fast, which may or may not be true, but certainly stands to reason. That kind of game planning would be very interesting to me. So how has you felt working on analytics in hockey has increased your engagement for the sport? So it's gone from, I know you're doing it because you're homesick, now you're analyzing the sport. Has that changed your enjoyment? Yeah, very much. In fact, surprisingly much. This is one of those things that, that everybody who works in the sport professionally will tell you, but that's very hard to internalize until you get to it. A lot of it is is done socially because I like I used to follow lots and lots of teams, and I still do, of course, now working professionally. But for years and years, I was much more of an Ottawa Senators fan than I was of anything else. And that sort of gets slowly bled out of you. Uh, it certainly doesn't help that the team is currently dreadful and has possibly the most venal criminal owner in the history of sports. But the professional aspect of it, too, I, I think is just mediated socially because I'm putting out material about every team for the wider world. And I get engagement, just people speaking to me, asking questions, commenting, just laughing along sometimes from all of the teams. And so you're constantly rubbing shoulders with people who cheer for every team one way or another. And it comes with a certain amount of animosity uh, because people know about my background with Ottawa, for instance. And all those very often sort of good natured animosity, although not always. And once you have that, you know, you, you can't help but look so often at the same stuff from so many different angles, from the angles of this fan, of that fan, of this fan, you know, and then you start doing referee work and you start thinking about the game from the perspective of a referee. And every time you take on a new project, you're unavoidably putting yourself in the mental frame of how do I think of the game from the point of view of the head coach, the power play coach, the power play um, defender who's quarterbacking it, the so on and so forth. And the, the diversity of perspectives can be, can give you vertigo almost, but in the end it, it functions like this kind of smoothing where if you have any particularly strong opinions about, oh, you know, that guy plays for the Penguins or something, and so I don't like him, you kind of get smoothed away. And then, of course, the players move around all the time. And so you become attached to particular players. And analytics is very encouraging of that sort of thing. You know, you see a guy with great results and he's not getting the minutes that you feel he deserves from his coach. And you you can't help but sort of secretly like him a little bit more than you did previously. And then he gets traded to a new team. And so you're your feelings about the team are affected more and more by the, your feelings about the players. And so that's one of the refrains you hear a lot that I didn't understand at first. People say, oh, you know, I'm like, I used to be a Habs fan when I was a kid, but now that I'm a media member, that I put that all aside and I just like particular players. And I understand that now that that's very easy to do. My devotion to Mark Stone remains untouched now that he's gone to Las Vegas, even though I think it's sad that he no longer plays for the team I used to cheer for. What sort of players do you find interesting to analyze? Is it sort of the weird players? Yeah, it's it's the ones that are really unusually bad at a particular thing and unusually good at a different thing. Those are the, the players that that are the most interesting. And I, I have never made a war model, like a, a wins above replacement, where you try to normalize everything you've got down into a single currency so that you can try to say, you know, this much defense is worth that much offense and this much penalty killing is worth that much shot blocking or whatever it might be. You know, all around great players are sort of fun just because it's fun to imagine this great colossus of hockey is sort of good at everything. You know, Crosby and Ovechkin and, and all Yager and all the like 
however old he is now. Those players are fun for the obvious reasons that they almost never have any substantial weaknesses, and that in itself is really impressive. But the interesting players to analyze are people like Patrick Laine, who who has one of the most one of the best shots, pure shooting actions that the sport has ever seen, and yet lots of other weaknesses. You know, not just defensive weaknesses, but also strange offensive weaknesses where he doesn't pass the puck especially well and he doesn't position himself especially well and yet has this incredible ability to almost single-handedly win games for you in the right circumstances. And so that that sort of hot and cold within the same person is always really interesting. Anything that just says, well, these players are good and those players are bad is in some sense antithetical to what you want from analysis, which is you know, trying to discern why is that team succeeding, why is that player succeeding or failing. Is much more that quantitative urge really draws you towards those kinds of players within which contain those sorts of multitudes. Has there ever been a player that just went completely against your opinion of them from just watching them when you dug into the data? There's been a few. The most obvious example is probably perennial arguments about second and third pairing defenders, you know, many of whom are, are analytics darlings and then they drop out of the league and they, they don't get the respect of their coach for whatever reason or the ones who, who linger on for enormous lengths of time despite being broadly hated by analytics type people. And so a good example of that is somebody like um, Mark Borowiecki, who's been a perennial third and second pair defender for Ottawa for a number of years now. And, and my opinion of him has changed quite a bit over the years. I mean, as he's changed as a player, but also as, as I've come to analyze the game more differently and perceive more of his strengths, which were evidently much more obvious to his coaches and that were not nearly so obvious to fans watching. You know, and, and players who are who have obvious puck weaknesses but are strong otherwise, or vice versa, of course, can look very different from their overall results. And so and defense, of course, is more difficult to evaluate because you have to evaluate what doesn't happen as well as what does happen. You know, so your eyes are never ever going to be enough to tell you that because you can't possibly imagine the the great multiplication of all of the things that could possibly have happened but did not because this player made a good play. I mean, it's not like he's some sort of fantastic player, but I realized very gradually and with more a sense of professional unease that he's not the player that I thought he was when I first started evaluating players systematically. And the part of what made that unusual is that I had seen him so much and had formed such a settled opinion based on what he looked like to watch. Your graphs were featured, I think, last year during broadcasts. So they add quite a bit of understanding to the games, or at least broadcasters do. Does that make you want to change how you do things or increase your scope of work? A little bit. You know, even though you know you can just take images and put them up if you like, and, and of course a handful of broadcasters did, the media are different. And if I was targeting a broadcast as a destination for, for a piece of viz, for some, some piece of understanding, I would do it differently than I do it for Twitter, where in particular, the most obvious distinction is time. You know, if, you, if I put something up on Twitter, one of the things that I'm expecting is that anybody who's interested in it can take as long as they feel like to investigate it. That sort of map-like quality to data viz that I really like, where you can make it rich and detailed, and, and you don't have to get it all across right away, because all you have to do is draw people in to make it so that they want to figure it out, and then they can then they can take in as much as they want to take in from it. But if you're producing the same thing for broadcast, you, you don't have that luxury. It'll be on the screen. You know, if it's on the screen for five full seconds, that's a, a long, lingering shot by modern video standards. So you have to have 
something that can be, you know, you have the help of a person who's going to explain it or try to explain it, a broadcaster who's going to do their best, but you have to have something which can hold up in a very quick environment. And that's, it's definitely broadening my horizons. It's certainly something I'm interested in. Not that anybody's ever paid me for that sort of thing. So the, the professional opportunities are a little bit limited, but it's very interesting. And I, uh, I'm keen to come up with things that will work well in that environment. Okay. How would you change your grasp for broadcasts? They'd definitely be simplified. You know, lots of the, lots of the little details, like you put little tick marks that show, you know, the distances from the goal. You know, small details like that are just completely irrelevant in a, in a broadcast setting. So just simplify that completely. Maybe blare up the contrast a little bit. Maybe even include little annotations for broadcasters that say like this is the instead of expecting somebody to click on a link, say, and then read a long article that I wrote about exactly how to explain it, you know, that's completely ridiculous in a broadcast context. So I might just include little explanations that go on the graphs, and so they can be clipped off before they go onto the, onto the broadcast itself. But then the broadcaster who's reading it can say, aha, this means such and such. And these little annotations for that sort of thing. Do you think that with more and more analytics becoming more and more mainstream, has that changed the fan base of hockey and what they're expecting, not only from like broadcasters, but from the way their teams actually play? I, I think it has. You start to see that, I mean, analytics, this word exists as a, like a flashpoint for people to yell about. You know, nobody can quite tell you precisely what it is, but everybody's keen to yell. And so whenever you get... You know, you'll see coaches say something like, well, you know, I know his analytics look bad, but I know better than that. You know, there's something sort of nonsensical about that. But that's just the way that the change slowly plays itself out where you, you know, you get these volleys back and forth in the media. You get broadcasters doing new things like we were just talking about. You get in arena people who, you know, are putting up stats, putting up things up on jumbotrons the, who are trying to decide, you know, what is it that people are going to like? You've got the communities on Twitter, you've got the communities on different parts of the internet, you've got the communities around the water coolers at workplaces all over the world. And you can still detect a palpable change where people are keen to have more data-driven stuff, to see things in black and white a little bit more, to dig a little bit deeper than just shots and goals. Um, people still want that. There's, there's a very substantial crowd, I don't think, that will ever want anything else. So that part hasn't changed in any way. But there's definitely been a deepening. And that's one of the things that you can have with really mature fan bases for a sport is that there's a, always a section of people who are keen to learn more, even if the sport as a whole is still dominated mostly by people who, who I mean, are like me when I'm watching a different sport where I just like to yell at the TV and cheer when my team wins. Okay, so what is analytics to you then? So for me, it's, it's become quite humdrum in a way. I mean, it's sort of what I do every day that feeling you get when you think, right, well, it's time to go to work. But, but more, but less prosaically, it's about trying to understand who, trying to disentangle the different effects from one another. You know, so if people play at the same time and one of them is, is driving the results, you want to be able to isolate that. So all of the effects that all of the people are having, and it's, I think of it like a social science, because it's primarily about people and the decisions they make. And so the people are very unusual people. They have athletic abilities, far beyond, I mean, most obviously far beyond what I can do, but far beyond what, what most people can do. And so that, that makes them intrinsically interesting, but still teasing apart which influences come from which people. Oh, the rules give you these incentives, and so that's why people are doing it. So that's still people, right? People who make those rules for particular purposes so that the game will be exciting, so that the incentives will play out in a way that we will all collectively enjoy. 
but also the coaches make these decisions and the players make these decisions. And so the, the interplay between people at the edge of their abilities and also the way that they make decisions and how those things play out, you know, those questions are all social science sort of questions. And so if you like, I like to think of analytics as being the quantitative approach to those sorts of social questions. And so then there's a, there's a tradition there, both academic and applied, of quantitative social sciences, which I don't think we've collectively drawn on very much. So there's like analysis and then there's the coaches teach the players? They teach them in, in a number of different ways. I still maintain a small interest in teaching where I, I'm a sessional instructor at a local university here. So I teach one or two courses a year you know, which is clearly not my, not my primary job, but I love it very much. And that's one of the things that, that having a math PhD in particular lets you do, makes it very easy to get that sort of thing. I mean, very easy, perhaps exaggerates it. But teaching is, is one of those things which you do in lots of different ways, whether you like it or not. You know, you have your conventional stand up at a blackboard and say, this is what I want. And of course, NHL coaches do a fair bit of that with little whiteboard diagrams. And they say, okay, you go here, you go here, like the specific instructions. But there's much more teaching that goes on in a broader social way where certain behaviors are punished and other behaviors are rewarded. The hockey culture arguments can be simplistic and debilitating, but they also clearly go a great deal further than, than it first appears on the surface, where the culture means all of the things that people are doing and reinforcing, some of which are argued about and, and many others of which are just passed over. This is one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot because it was what I worked on this past summer. Or I, I try to improve my predictive models every year. And the, the biggest thing I did this past summer was try to make a first stab at quantifying coach impact. And the coaching impact is, is hard to get a hold of because they're literally not on the ice. And so you have to be a little bit more subtle in imagining how they might diffusely affect performance. But of course, I mean, we know they do not just in specific instructions, but in players who do certain kinds of things, stop getting minutes, you know, or in some extreme cases, will get traded away completely. And players who rub their teams the wrong way, you know, some they do like a Josh Hosang, will stop getting called up at all. And, and so you can legitimately argue whose fault that is. But the, and of course, I have, I've been happy to wade in on that. I think the Islanders have mistreated him. But when you have those disconnects between what one person is doing and what another agent is doing, a team as embodied in the culture of the game sort of rests on its people in funny ways, where certain people have influence at certain times and others at other times. You know, all of those questions are still interesting to me quantitatively. And so I try to cast a broad net for myself in thinking, you know, I can look at schedule effects, rest effects, coaching effects, all of these different things and, and do my best to quantify all of them. So that's quite interesting. So tackling the effects of coaches, or I guess any sort of problem, how do you go about that from the beginning? So I guess that's one of the things that's very hard to teach and communicate is how do you actually go about approaching and investigating a problem? So there, I think you, you kind of fall back to what sorts of tools you've seen deployed in the past. And so for years, I thought of myself as a pure mathematician and in places I still do. But the tools that I fall back to when I, when I need some sort of when I think to myself, you know, how am I going to put my hand into this and see if I can make a fist of it is the things I learned in my undergrad where I did a, a combined mathematics and physics degree. And the physics actually is the, uh, those, all of those technical tools for, you know, here's how you make a computational simulation of a thing, and here's how you take your measurements, and here's how you, 
you have enough statistics to like calculate sample means and calculate standard errors and calculate and and so all of those things you might not even present all of those things to a reader but it gives you a framework for saying okay this is how i ought to be looking at this and then when it comes out all wrong you can say aha this is why it came out all wrong this is what i should be doing differently and so a lot of that you know even though i was talking earlier about how it's all very social sciences and the things that you're that you're trying to accomplish a lot of the methods that i deploy come from the natural sciences because i have that background and that experience there's that sort of fallback to the level of your training um, whenever in doubt that animates a lot of what I do. Cool. Nate Silver did a tweet recently that's got a bit of attention. So he said that aspiring data scientists should spend 49% of their time developing statistical intuition, 49% on domain knowledge, 2% on methods. What do you sort of think about that? Uh, I think it's Nate is being a little bit bombastic. It's probably overstates things, and anybody working in the field has certainly seen somebody who got their hands on some fancy statistical tool, and they're imagining that they're going to discover something really, really groundbreaking with it. And in in practice, that's sort of not what we actually see. And so I understand the his frustration with that. But the other problem is actually much, much harder to see. If a person ought to have approached a problem with a particular method, but they don't realize that they don't know why they should be doing that, and so they don't. If their reader is in the same boat, which is frequently the case for advanced methods because they're advanced, you know, people by nature don't know them, then the whole world, can, the readers and the writers alike, can be making the same mistake and they'll pass on with their lives totally unawares that there might possibly be anything wrong. And there might be no conflict whatsoever and everybody will just say, well, fine. And only a person who knows, which are by nature few and far between, could possibly even ask the question, should you have used this more advanced method, let alone answer it, which is generally to answer such a question is is quite a bit of work it's not like the sort of thing where you can walk along and say ah you know you're driving on the wrong side of the road you know it's not immediately obvious when a person is making a mistake let alone what kind of mistake it is and so i found somewhat to my own surprise that some of the techniques reasonably advanced techniques that i've learned only very recently have been considerably more useful than i first expected there's some aspect of me which says, oh, you know, I'd love to learn about some particularly unusual technique just because I really like unusual mathematical techniques. I don't actually use them very much. So there's a, definitely an aspect in which Silver is, is right. You know, you primarily use the simple techniques again and again and again. But some of the advanced techniques that I've learned in the last year have really reanimated my approaches to old problems. And so for everything you put out, there's always a couple other things that you try to do that kind of get left on the back burner, not sure what to do with that, not sure where to, how to push that project forward. And then you go back, you learn a new technique, and you think, aha, this might well be actually what, what livens up that project. And now I, that tricky point, I can actually treat carefully and judiciously. So when, when the methods that you're using allow you to do what you want to do gracefully, then there's no substitute. There's some really unfortunate stuff that goes on in hockey stats that's animated by a baseballish approach and and nate is a great example of that because he came from baseball before he was even in politics let alone any other sports of clumsily hacking data into pieces and saying well you know we'll just look at this real quick and say well we'll just throw out all the at bats of more than 10 pitches or something because they're annoying to us for this per for we're going to laser in on this particular thing and you have this very sort of machete through the jungle approach to data science which is kind of more of a party trick i feel than actually solving any problems and i naturally gravitate towards not necessarily advanced techniques in terms of presentation i try not to show a great deal of mathematics to the general public since even if they're strongly interested in data-driven approaches to work they don't want to see 
extremely technical material. And so then, of course, to do that, if you want to use sophisticated methods but not show them that way, you have to understand them extremely well to know when you're misleading people and when you're just hiding irrelevant details. And so that that also dissuades people from using them. You know, you need to have that practice so that it doesn't look unusual and showy. But I guess you can, after all that, I think you can mark me down as more on the side of advanced methods, despite their being more difficult to apply. Do you think or have you noticed maybe a increasing trend to skip over trying to answer the question maybe with a more simpler method and going straight to more advanced methods? I'm not sure. It's hard to say. Certainly some people are trying this. And I think like how justified you think it is depends on on how you felt about the previous efforts. When a lot of the, the progression does go in the way that you would hope it do, where people try simple methods and they come up with various answers and then they're not happy, you know, either because they don't like them conceptually or because they give results that don't make sense or because the productivity of future events is weak. And, you know, I don't think anybody is happy, for instance, with the state of goalie analysis. I don't think anybody says some people who are rightfully proud of their methods in particular areas, and I'm definitely one of them. But I don't think anybody says to themselves, well, we've teased out all the information we can from that. You know, this is as solved as we can make it. And so once you're in a situation like that, where you've tried a great deal at solving a particular problem and you're not getting nearly as much progress as you like, there's understandable, justifiable, constant clamoring for something different. And we'd always prefer to have more data and better data, but you can't just force data to appear just by sort of wishing for it. And the more data you have, the more sophisticated your methods have to be to make sure that you can still process it in a timely way. And so the the, we would like more data to solve this problem and we'd like more sophisticated methods to solve this problem correctly come as the field matures and as the simple approaches prove unhelpful or unsatisfactory where that also goes in lockstep with our expectations. You know, there was a time when we were content with some sort of simple adjustment just based on shot counts, shot rates for a particular thing. And then later, once we realized, you know, oh, we can look at shot locations and we can take that into account, you know, people became rightfully displeased with the old ways that they loved for years. You know, now they say, well, now we want better. And that process, I think, is not just people being contrary. I think it's actually progress. And so I try to embrace it, even though it does mean that you, you know, you constantly have to do more work and do better. So if I was just a fan of hockey and I came across Hockey Viz, how would you like me to go about your site so that I end up subscribing or I get the most out of it? One of the things is that almost every person, I, so I, I can tell I have Twitter analytics and website analytics, almost every person who comes to the site comes from a conversation on Twitter. Not always one that's happening with me. The work is used by enough people now that, that they're almost always coming from a particular context. And so when the questions that people have are the ones that I'm answering, when the, when the conversations that, that are animating them line up with the parts of the website that they're looking at, then I'm having a great success where people think, oh, this is fantastic. I really want to understand this. I really want to get into it. And so it's more about matching the site to people's experiences than it is to matching people's experience to how they go around the website. The website has a very, you know, I think it's reasonably pretty, but it's also very, very simple in the sense that there's not a lot of flash to it. There's really just links to the thing and you click and then you get a picture. And then if the picture answers your problem, then great. And if not, then then you have to do something totally different. It's not sort of an interactive woven 
experience. And that's deliberate in my case, as much as I can. I like that aesthetically, but I also, I like that from a point of view of information design, where, where I like to think of the, of the site as a reference, not as, you know, not as a narrative or a storytelling device. What about the new stuff that you've worked on this year that has just come out? Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Some of the improvements were in the model. So the predictive model is the sort of the, the backbone of the thing. And the coaching has been the most interesting part of it, especially and that required me to look at something in a longer historical context than I had previously. And so I had to switch to an approach where I was looking at each year as its own thing. And so using the estimates of every player's ability and every coach's ability at the end of a given year to be the starting point for how I would look at their performance the following year. So instead of just forgetting what I knew about them from one year to the next. And so even though the model is run on a single year at a time, each year is informed by the previous year. And so it forms an information chain that goes all the way back to the beginning of the good data that we've got. So in my case, that's back 12 years. And in fact, that's a nice example that that way of specifying priors requires a, a level of mathematics, which I didn't have two years ago. And so that being able to do that was the technical key that unlocked that sort of thing. And had I been looking at single seasons, I would almost never have been able to tease apart coaches from individual players because over a single season, the coach for the head coach for a team is present essentially at all the times that all of their best players are present. And so the, there'd be no way to tease them apart mathematically unless you had a way of accessing a past data where those combinations didn't exist, you know, from before the coach arrived. It's still problematic in places where, because coaches tend to have very long tenures compared to players, but that opens up that possibility. And so that long approach also lets me produce a lot of historical data. In fact, I'm hoping to backfill even more of that sort of thing where you can say, you know, how good was such and such a player as isolated from their teammates and from their coaching at a certain time? You know, you can look back and say, oh, well, you know, there's sort of the fun stuff where you can marvel at how great Yarmor Yager was and you can look and ooh and ah about that sort of thing and wish that you had earlier data so that you could look at the, the greats of the past. And, you know, I enjoy that sort of thing, even though it's it's not really analysis, it's just fun. But you can also do a fair bit of saying, you know, how did that third liner go in that particular role when he was elevated into that spot? You can ask really detailed questions about history, which I really enjoy. And so there's been some other improvements too, but that historical approach has really opened up a lot of possibilities for me. With regards to other sports, is there another sport who you think could really go a lot from utilizing some of the methods in ice hockey? I have my suspicions about AFL. Aussie rules football is the only other sport that I pay a lot of attention to, and it's quite, quite different. As we were talking earlier about how I'm less and less of a fan of any particular hockey team, going along with that, there's been a, an urge for me to identify even more closely with the Sydney Swans, the team that I cheered for when I was in Sydney as a student and have done since. And so I, I kind of hesitate to suggest it because I engage with the sport in such a different way. And so every time I think about doing analytics work, I, I unavoidably think about doing it myself. And I don't want to work on the sport that I enjoy. But if somebody else wanted to do it, I think there's quite a bit of, of hay to be made there. Even though the sports are quite different uh, in terms of the number of people on the playing surface at a time, especially compared to the size of the bench, there's a lot of similarity in the, the free fluidness where the positions are imposed you know, almost completely by the coaches, not at all by the game itself. 
apart from people having to designate for rucks, there's basically nothing else where you have to, where certain players have to do specific rules, specified things. You know, if you wanted to run 18 full forwards, you know, you could do that and lose. But the, the similarity, the formal similarities to hockey are quite strong. And I feel like you could get quite a bit out of that. Okay. So what's something that you would like to see as a rough thing, maybe transferred or looked into seeing if it could go across? I think you could get some mileage out of the kinds of regressions that I've been doing that are designed to isolate individual ability. You could treat players as different when they played in different spots on the on the pitch. So you could, without too much fuss, especially if you have tracking data, which I understand exists, you know, you could say, oh, so-and-so has been moved from half-back up to full forward, and they've decided to make a coaching change at a particular time. And if you treated those as two different players, which ineffectively they are, you could tease apart some of the ability of that player at that position and the ability of that player at this position. So one of the, one of my easy ways into analytics that has been very useful for me in hockey, which I think would work here also, is that you can come up with something very, very small, little rudimentary model that does almost nothing, and then you can watch a game and listen every time the commentators say something that could possibly have any relevance to your model, and then you can just say, I wonder if that's true or not. If you hear somebody say, well, you know, ever since they put so-and-so in the ruck, all of a sudden they've started to dominate the hitouts. I mean, that you say, well, is that true? You can tinker around in your little model and see if the variables connect up in roughly the same way that the commentators say that they, they match up. Especially because that situates you inside a conversation, and sometimes it's an inane conversation, but it always gives you something relevant because you know that the other people who are watching the sport are also taking in the same commentators, you know, within a small set of broadcasters. And so you can say something like, oh, so-and-so said this on the broadcast, he was right. Or so-and-so said this, he was totally off base. And even if you don't come to a strong conclusion like that, you still have a way in to improving what you're doing. And so once you've done that, then you'll have a better thing, even if you don't get you know, a soundbite to give out to the world. Which Sydney Swans player do you think would go okay at ice hockey? <laughs> I have a strong feeling that Adam Goods, retired now, of course, could at his prime, have played any sport in the world with uh, his extremely unusual way of looking at the game reminds me of somebody who could have succeeded at every sport in the world. And of course, Mike Pike, who played for the Swans for a number of years and won a flag with them, was a rugby union player originally for in a Canada international and switched over. And so that was a big part of why I got into it. I mean, so he was growing up in Canada playing rugby union, so he obviously wasn't in the typical hockey mold. I feel like a lot of the smaller sort of short key forwards could well do well in, in hockey where they could be quite a bit faster. I can see somebody like a Reese Shaw being a Vincent LeCavalier style small forward who can get tough in the corners and, and also maybe have a really good shot. Cool. Yeah, the tall timber, I think, I don't think that's going to come across. You know, Buddy Franklin is my favorite player by some distance. I'm not sure that he could sort of make it in the Dustin Bufflin mold. Like he might have to lose even, even a lot more weight, too much of a big unit for hockey. Where do you go about reading hockey? Like reading other people's work? Is there any way you go to in particular? There's a handful of people who's, who I know think about the game extremely well. And so that if they publish something, I'm going to, I know I'm, even before I sit down to it, that I'm going to come out smarter and, and wiser. Matt Kane is probably the most obvious of that. He works for the Devils now, but published uh, at Hockey Graphs for a number of years. Namita Nandakumar is another one like that. Her approaches are consistently very strong. She works for the Philadelphia Eagles now. There's a, a nasty trend where the people who do really good work get snapped up, either by hockey teams or by teams in other sports. 
you know, those are the two that, that really spring to mind, although there's a small raft of people. It depends in, in a way on what I want. Like if I was interested in coaching, in the connecting analytics work to coaches, which is a continuing, you know, not in terms of evaluating coaches, but in terms of, of speaking to coaches with this is the effect that we've observed. We know that this is what happens when this player plays. Explaining that extra step of why does it happen? What are you telling him? What are you not telling him? What is he doing right? What is he doing wrong? What is causing those effects? You know, in his actual on ice play, you know, that's what needs connecting with coaches. And if I was doing something like that, then I would I would pay more attention to the work of somebody like Ryan Stimson, who's been doing some great work in coaching linkings, if you like. Eric Parnas is another who was doing some excellent special teams work. He works for Colorado now. That's just off the top of the head, but there's really actually more and more people doing excellent work all the time. It's it's actually very encouraging. It feels like six years ago, there was uh, hardly any people and they were all extremely similar. And now I, I feel like that's not at all the case. So for people listening, uh, what's the best way to go about reading a, about your work and seeing all the good stuff you've done? So my Twitter handle is at ineffective math. It's a joke about how I could never get a full-time mathematics job. And so I had to slum it around in hockey, which is already considerably more fun, I think, than a full-time math job ever would have been. And so the Twitter handle is sort of full of, I use it uh, in places. I mean, it's a personal Twitter account, so it's got all manner of stuff. But among other things, I, I put out occasional sort of speculative ideas. There's also the website itself, which is designed to be, like I said earlier, designed to be sort of referency. But one of the things you can do is you can just go look at your team pages and start clicking around and start seeing some shot patterns and start seeing some coaching patterns. I occasionally have described it on another podcast as a compendium of writing prompts for journalists. On the one hand, I, I try to make the things to settle particular points, like who is playing defense minutes when this such and such team is down? You know, who is getting those minutes? But also, if you care about the game at all, it doesn't take you more than 30 seconds to look at a chart and say, well, I wonder why that is. I wonder who's driving that. I wonder why. And once you start asking questions like that, then you can start digging around and try to find a little bit more and that might be on my side, it might be somewhere else, it might be part of another conversation. But that, I think, in some sense, the purest way is not just as a, oh, yes, I was right, and then you close the website, but as a, as a link into asking interesting questions about what is driving what you see on the ice. Cool. Well, thank you very much for taking the time out to talk to me today. I had a lot of not fun, and, and I hope you did as well. I did. Thank you very much. 